The talk you're about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the 18th of April 2023 and this evening uh, we're going to take a little bit of time to look at why we celebrate Earth Day. It's coming up this uh, Sunday morning and people may wonder why we have this, this Earth Day ceremony and day of action. Certainly Earth Day is not part of any Buddhist canon that I know about. Um, but it, it is, I think, meaningful for us to mark, mark this day. But, um, Earth Day began uh, in 1970 when people were starting to become more aware of the destruction and pollution that was happening to air and earth and water. Uh, just to take one striking example, in 1969, a river in Ohio caught fire due to the chemicals that were in it at the time, since being cleaned up. But this was, this was a time when there was a real awakening of people's awareness of these um, things. They were starting to impinge on people's senses. So, Earth Day began and it continues to be um, a time for raising awareness. Or you could even say of an act of remembrance. Um, mindful, the word for mind, mindfulness, sati, actually closer to it, close to the original etymology of it is, is of recollection or remembering. And our planet is certainly in a process of being dismembered. And we, she needs us to remember her. The, the effects of human activity on, on our biosphere have become um, so intense that a new geological era has been named after the time we live in, the Anthropocene. There are different um, uh, opinions about when it actually started, but the point is that human, human uh, actions can now be read in the rocks, which is, is quite, quite extraordinary. It's how we're having that much of a effect. Well, somebody put it, they said the human, human mind has the power to heat the atmosphere. It is heating the atmosphere. Our, our planet needs to be recalled, especially by those of us who are, one way or another, caught up in the the, what we could call the dominant paradigm of an <coughs> industrial consumerism. It's actually pretty hard to avoid being caught up in one way or another, but we do know that the big corporations and the very rich are particularly implicated in this and have to be woken up to that fact and continue to be woken up. This, this industrial consumerism 
is is based on this idea of exploitation of nature's resources, including her animals and often people as well. And the idea, the the, the guiding principle behind it is to externalize the costs of whatever we make as much as possible um, so that we can make bigger pr profits on what we sell and whatever we make is to be sold and con consumed so that we can keep expanding our wealth and this is the material wealth of comfort and ease and entertainment and so forth so focused is this paradigm on growth that it can't it hardly even pronounce the word recession it has to say instead which i always find amusing negative growth to be avoided at all costs is this notion of shrinkage and of course it is very painful recessions are very painful for many people and yet and yet we do have to find a way to reduce our consumption. We, as people have pointed out many times, we can't keep growing. We've only got this one planet. So we have three elements in our Earth Day. Um, the first one is sitting. Uh, the second one is chanting and prostrations, and the third one is work. And we can say that these three elements cover mind, speech, and body. And the first one is, is probably the most important, sitting. When we sit, we pay attention to the mind, the body-mind. And we have this opportunity to dissolve our mistaken views about ourself and what we deem other, including our environment. I try to avoid using this word environment because it is so um, bland and um, abstract. And it, it kind of epitomizes this objectification we, we, of the earth that we undertake so much of the time. That the, the, one of our deeply held, deeply mistaken views is that the environment is out there. It's, it's dead matter. But if we sit, if we pay attention, if we still the mind, then we can begin to see that we are the earth and that we hurt. Sometimes the, the earlier experiences we have are um, a sudden non-separation from something right in front of us, the sunlight on the ground or autumn leaves falling or sparrows chirping but we are equally along with these things the drought in Somalia or the war in Ukraine and to face these 
um, zones of, of our suffering, we really are also called upon, we need to touch on our deepest inner resources so that we can really open up to the truth of what is going on. So um, I want to explore a little bit through some a passage um, some of the reasons why sitting is not just sort of a nice thing to have, but actually an urgent task for us all. And I'd like to read a little bit from a book we've dipped into already once in another Tay show. It's called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. And its author is, is Thich Nhat Hanh, but actually um, it's a, it's a compilation of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings from other places, plus um, reworking of some of his teachings by his students. It was published quite recently, and certainly after um, Thich Nhat Hanh had his major stroke. Um, there's a little bit in the back about the process. Um, of collecting the book material. Ah, here we are. So um, there was a kind of a core team of editors um, who worked together with Sister True Dedication, and she seems to be the main other writer in the book. Um, it was, um, it, Thich Nhat Hanh had his stroke in 2014, and they say in, the, in the, this passage at the back, this book is the fruit of a diverse and vibrant spiritual community working together to bring today's rich body of teachings into print. Since his stroke, in 2014, Tay has been a warrior, a silent sage, and a boundless source of love, trust, and support as we continue his work. So this is a sort of um, bringing together of, of his, all his teachings around um, grappling with um, our human predicament in, in, the, in this day and age, here and now. So in this, in this um, early on in the book, um, talking about about our practice and about sitting. Even if we want to help the planet and work for justice, human rights, and peace. We may not be able to contribute anything if we haven't yet been able to fulfill our most basic needs. Our deepest need is not only to have food to eat, a house to live in, and a partner to love. I've seen many people who have all these things, and yet they continue to suffer deeply. Who, those who are powerful or famous still suffer deeply. We need something more than these material things. We need love, we need understanding. We also need peace, some deep peace inside. 
Without that, we're lost. Once we have peace, we, can, we are clear enough and calm enough to see the way forward. To have peace inside is a very basic need. Without it, you can't really do anything to help others. And so we all need peace, understanding and love. But it seems these things are very rare. You can't get them in a supermarket. You can't get them online. The question is, how can I myself create the energy of peace, of understanding and of love? Meditation is for this. It's a very urgent task. We can learn how to cultivate in any situation a feeling of peace, understanding and compassion. So this, this is really why sitting is the first element of our, of our Earth Day um, celebration. To, you could say, lay, lay a kind of groundwork, the foundation that will enable us to really open to, to truly remember the Earth. Maybe some sense heal its dismemberment. Love starts with observing body and mind. All of us have some kind of suffering, some pain, in our body and in our mind, and so love is needed right away. Um, deep love, deep acceptance, um, empathy, we call it different things, but it all has to do with uh, embracing gently the situation, the reality that we're experiencing in our body-mind. There may be suffering in the body or in the mind, perhaps a block of suffering that has been there for a very long time, whether it has been transmitted to us by our parents and ancestors or accumulated in our lifetime. We have to be able to recognize our suffering and learn how to transform it so we don't transmit it to future generations. Um, C.G. Jung, a great psychologist, said that um, if we could just avoid repeating the mistakes of our parents, that would be a huge achievement. And the way the way we we avoid that repeating our mis mistakes of our parents is by learning from our suffering. And and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh here says that there's always something we can do to, to transform our suffering into joy and happiness, love. It is only by having the courage to encounter our own suffering that we can generate the clarity and compassion we need to serve the world. And probably the, the number one thing that we... Um, generate when we really learn from our suffering, when we face it and accept it, is um, we develop compassion for others 
and what they might be going on, what might be going on inside them. There's a there's a quote about this, sometimes attributed to, wrongly to Plato. Uh, everybody you meet, be kind, because everybody you meet is fighting a hard battle. A yogi, a practitioner, is an artist who knows how to handle their fear and other kinds of painful feeling or emotion. They do not feel they are a victim because they know there is something they can do. You listen to the suffering and you get in touch with it. Breathe in and out deeply to see why am I suffering? Where has it come from? Your suffering, your fear, may reflect the suffering of your parents, your ancestors and the planet. It also contains the suffering of your time, your community, your society, your nation. It, it usually feels pretty personal, our, suffer, our suffering, but it also has this other element to it. This, um, we could call it our collective karma and can help to lighten the, the burden if we if we don't take it so personally. It's very important not to cover it up with music, movies or computer games. To have the courage to go home to yourself. To recognize and hold the suffering inside and look deeply into it may be the most important thing you can do as a meditator. And everybody knows that it, this is one of the things that, that perhaps we have, why we have resistance to going to the mat is because we do face ourselves when we sit in stillness and quiet and turn our mind back on itself. The meditator breathes in and says, Hello, my fear, my anger, my despair. I will take good care of you. The moment you recognize the feeling and smile to it with love and care, embracing the fear with mindfulness, it will begin to change. This is, this is an extraordinary thing, that just paying attention is already affecting the situation, or is already affecting the, the um, thing that is being paid attention to. It's, he says, it's like morning sunlight shining on a lotus flower. The bud has not opened yet, but as the sunlight pours down, the photons penetrate into the bud. And after one or two hours of being penetrated by the light, the flower opens itself. The world opens itself to us when we, when we pay attention to it. We have the energy of mindfulness generated by mindful walking, sitting or breathing. With that energy we embrace our fear as gently as the light embracing the flower. When the two kinds of energies encounter each other, there will be a change, a transformation. The energy of tenderness penetrates the fear 
anger and despair. You hold it as clearly as you might, you hold it as dearly as you might hold a wounded child. This, um, this teaching about the lightness of our touch is, is very important. Um, to come at things, um, treating them lightly. Um, there's, the, there's the medical doctor from the mid of the last century, Claire Weeks, who talks about us facing, accepting, and then floating past our, our difficulties, our negative thoughts, and then giving them time. This is a huge one. Not expecting to just um, get rid of these difficult things immediately, giving them time. If the emotion becomes very strong, you'll feel it coming up. The way to handle it is to put yourself in a stable position and use your in-breath and out-breath to make you solid so it can't sweep you away. Lying down or sitting, you focus your mind on what is called the tantien. This is the Japanese tanden. Um, sometimes we refer to hara. The point an inch or so below your belly button. And you can even place your hands there. You concentrate 100% on your in-breath and out-breath and the rising and falling of your abdomen and you'll be able to stop the thinking. In that moment, it's very important to stop the thinking because the more you think, the more you despair, your despair and fear will carry you away. And just a word of warning when talking about stopping the thought. We do this by indirection. We do it by uh, concentrating on the breath, not, not through pushing the thought away or trying to um, get rid of it directly. Rather, we keep deflecting our attention to the breath, and in that, the, the um, negative emotion can lose its, its fuel, its, its energy, and fade away. Don't be afraid. The wave of emotion is like a storm, and it will go away after some time. You may breathe in for a count of six or seven or eight or even ten seconds and you can breathe out for ten or fifteen or seconds or more without thinking. You will find relief. Focusing on the breath like this is one option or just, just sitting, being aware of... Um, feelings and thoughts and emotions passing through us. As if watching, watching a parade, watching the, the different colorful characters passing by. There's a, um, a neuroscientist, um, Jill Bolte-Taylor, who had a very serious stroke, which she took several years to recover from, but she wrote a fascinating book about her experiences. 
um, of, of both having the stroke and recovering. And she had a particularly um, interesting perspective because she was a neuroscientist um, going into this process and coming out of it. Uh, but she says something about um, strong emotion in the book that um, can, be, can be very helpful to understand. She says, um, when a person has a reaction to something in their environment, there's a 90-second chemical process that happens in the body. And he's, she's talking here about things like strong anger or fear or anxiety. So emotions that we, we've experienced strongly in the body. So there's a chemical process which happens with these different strong emotions. After that, any remaining emotional response is just the person choosing to stay in that emotional loop. Something happens in the external world and chemicals are flushed through your body which pulls it on, on, puts it on full alert. For those chemicals to totally flush out of the body takes less than 90 seconds. I suppose she really means he had metabolized and disappeared. This means that for 90 seconds you can watch the process happening, you can feel it happening, and then you can watch it go away. After that, if you continue to feel fear, anger, and so on, you need to look at the thoughts that you're thinking that are re-stimulating the circuitry that is resulting in your having this physiological response over and over again. So just let me read that again because it's, it's a really helpful point. After the, She's saying, after this first 90 seconds, if you continue to feel fear, anger, and so on, you need to look at the thoughts that you're thinking that are re-stimulating the circuitry that is resulting in your having this response. So to see, to look at how we might be perpetuating strong emotions that come up by certain things we are thinking about ourselves and others. So this, this next piece is, is um, again, still Thich Nhat Hanh's voice here. It's a headed up Zen in a storm. In 1976, together with my colleagues and friends in the Buddhist peace movement, we organized relief work to help save the lives of refugees who are escaping Vietnam. In Singapore, we secretly re rented three large boats to rescue people adrift on the high seas and quietly took them to other countries for asylum. At that time, the authorities were leaving the refugees at sea to die, sometimes even pushing the small boats back out. And so, if we wanted to help the boat people, we had no choice but to break the law. In one mission, we rescued nearly 800 people in the Gulf of Siam, 
but the Malaysian government refused to allow our boats to enter Malaysian waters. During those days, we practiced sitting meditation and walking meditation and ate our meals in silence and concentration. We knew that without that kind of discipline, our work would fail. The lives of many people depended on our practice of mindfulness. But while we were in the middle of trying to find a way to bring the refugees safely to shore in a country that would accept them, our relief program was exposed. The Singapore police came to our door at 2am, confiscated my travel documents and ordered us to leave the country within 24 hours. We still had hundreds of people aboard the boats, not yet brought to safety and without enough food or water. Their lives depended on us. We were, there were high winds and rough seas and one of the boat's engines had broken. What could we do? I had to breathe deeply. It was an extremely difficult situation. There were more problems than it seemed possible to solve in the 24 hours before I had to leave. I realized that I needed to put into practice the words, if you want peace, you have peace right away. You have to want it enough. I saw that. If I didn't have peace at that moment, I would never be able to have peace. Peace can be found in the midst of danger. I will never forget every second of sitting meditation, every breath and every step I took in mindfulness through that night. At around four in the morning, I finally got the insight that we could appeal to the French ambassador, who had been silently supporting us, to intervene in our favour and ask the Singapore authorities to grant us leave to stay just ten more days. Ten days might be just enough to get the people to safety. The ambassador agreed, and at the last minute we got approval from the immigration office to stay. If we hadn't had the practice of meditation, of mindful breathing and mindful walking, we would easily have been overwhelmed by suffering and unable to keep going. We were eventually able to get supplies to the boats, and although it took months to get them ashore and many years for their asylum claims to be processed in refugee camps, their lives were saved. So good to hear a, a concrete example of how our sitting practice can be um, applied in the midst of a really difficult, challenging situation. There's more, there's more here, but we just so we have make sure we say a little bit about our other two elements of our ceremony tomorrow. Um, if we've got time, we can come back to this a bit, more, a bit more of this. But I want to say about um, chanting. It's the second element of our ceremony on Sunday. Um, Chanting is a way of embodying the teaching. It's, it's another form of zazen, but it's also um, different in that it involves words. And those words, this, the, the t teachings, the Dharma teachings, uh, by our chanting them, we allow them to resonate in us. And we, we absorb them in this way in a... In a um, 
a really, well, if we can say it, non-rational way, because we're not trying so much to understand the words, but to to um, assimilate them, we'd say. The, the understanding comes more unconsciously and then can sometimes um, kind of emerge later. So this is one aspect of chanting. Um, it's also a way of, of collect, connecting with the benevolent forces of our, our own particular Dharma family. Uh, Roshi Kaplow, I think this is quoted at the beginning of the, our chant book, he said, Mind is unlimited. Chanting, when performed egolessly, has the power to penetrate visible and invisible worlds. We, we connect with some of these visible and invisible worlds um, through our chanting of the sutras. And especially we can, we can remind ourselves of all the enlightened ones of, of for going back for generations, back to the Buddha and beyond, whose efforts were on our behalf, who, whose bodhicitta was directed to future generations, us, And this can be this can be a source of great strength. And sometimes in our extremities, these lines from the chants will come back to us and and be encouraging. Roshi Kaplow always you always say that that this chanting is like. It's like another form of zazen, but um, it, it, I think it's fair to say that chanting is more outward turning. When, when we chant, we're seeking to embrace many beings. It's as if we are in this circuitry of, of um, bodhicitta, receiving it and, and at the same time passing it along. And part of the ceremony, we'll do prostrations. We we chant, we chant 108 recitations of the Kanon Sutra we just did earlier, the eight verse Kanon Sutra, ten verse Kanon Sutra rather. Um, I think it's only about half of the 108 that we prostrate with. Um, but these prostrations are another form of embodiment. Um, and a way of expressing reverence. Uh, certainly repentance can be involved. Gratitude is a big one. So prostrations can be purifying and also clarifying. Master Sheng Yin tells the story when he was a, a boy, a monk, young monk, and he, he describes himself as being extremely dull-witted and couldn't even man manage to memorize a few lines of a sutra. And so his teacher suggested that he do prostrations, and he did many thousands of them. But his mind was transformed by this, and he, b he became the great s scholar and, of course, 
knowledgeable and memorize many, many, many sutras. A chanting service is also a kind of a, um, a structured way of um, expressing our wish to relieve suffering. So it's, it kind of sets, sets our attention. Uh, somebody described uh, speech, or rather chanting, as um, ordered speech. Much of our inner, inner speech is, is disordered and um, all over the place. And by chanting, we're, it's as if we're, we're bringing some order to that space of our mind. A mind of a world of language that we usually experience. And implicit in that, in sense of setting our attention, our intention, is that we want to be have some integrity around it. Then it's to follow up that intention with some concrete contributions or actions. And that's why we have a little time in the ceremony when people make a pledge to donate as well. We used to do this with people using cash, but of course many people don't use cash anymore, so now we just make a pledge and you go online to different organisations and um, make, a, make a donation. And then, then um, the third part of the ceremony we're going to, on Sunday, we'll be doing some outdoor work. Um, some, some years ago we planted a whole lot of native trees, flowers and fruit trees behind us here in, the, in a piece of um, waste ground that, that was full of old shopping trundlers and traffic cones and beer cans and we cleaned it up and planted it and um, the, the trees and plants have really flourished um, and the amount of bird song we hear in the Zendo has, has increased a lot since we, since we planted the garden but it's, it does have a tendency to revert to its, to its earlier nature so we also um, go right there periodically and give it a good clean, uh, clean out. Um, and and it, it's, it's th uh, probably going to be reverting to, to wildness soon, but at least on Sunday we'll just be cleaning it up as much as we can and um, cleaning up the, the rubbish blown by there by the wind and perhaps abandoned by various visitors to the garden who like the fact that it can't be seen from anywhere else. So we'll, we'll do this work on this patch of land, uh, get down in the earth and, and, and experience that earthy reality that, that can be so 
fertile. There's all these beautiful trees have grown there. And one of the things that, that doing this can help us to remember in this, in this extended act of remembering is that we always can have this direct engagement with the earth and in little ways nourish life. They may be small, they may only affect a few other sentient beings, but it all adds up. Our actions matter. If I've got time, yeah, a little bit, okay, I haven't got a clock here. I want to finish just by reading a poem. Um, this, is, this is a spring poem, so more suitable for those in the, in the northern hemisphere who might be listening to this on, um, online. And this is from a, from a very fine American poet called Ross Gay. Um, who lives in Bloomington, Indiana, and is involved in, in this large community garden. And this, this poem is called Patience. And it's from a spring poem. Call it sloth, call it sleaze, call it bummery if you please. I'll call it patience and call it joy. This my supine congress with the newly yawning grass and beetles chittering in their offices beneath me as I, <clears throat> nearly drifting to dream, admire this so-called weed, which, if I guarded with teeth bared my garden of all alien breeds, if I was all knife and axe and made a life of hacking, would not have burst gorgeous forth and beckoning. These sort of phallic spires, ringleted by these sort of vaginal blooms, which the new bees, being bees, heed. And yes, it is spring, if you can't tell from the words my mind makes of the world, and everything makes me mildly or more hungry, the worm turning in the leaf mould, the pear blossoms howling forth their pungence, like a choir of wet dream boys hiking up their skirts. Even the neighbor's cats shimmy through the grin in the fence and the way this bee before me, after whispering in my ear, dip, dips her head into those dainty lips, not exactly like one entering a chapel. And friends, as if that wasn't enough, blooms forth with her forehead dusted pink like she has been licked and so blessed by the kind of God to whom this poem is a prayer. This collection of book poems um, is called A Catalogue of Unabashed Gratitude. And if we pay attention, if we quiet our minds and pay attention to the world around us, then we will be feel, filled with gratitude for this earth, this planet of which we are a part. And perhaps our job as human beings is to find ways to express this gratitude for this wonderful earth. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.